So kids can say some pretty crazy stuff, can't they? Have you ever been around a kid and they just say something and you are just like shocked either at how like awful of a thing it is they said or how profound of a thing it is they said, right? Now, Miles, when he was three years old, he made us laugh because we were riding in the van. It was a storm. It was very stormy out, raining really hard, so it was really loud. And so Miles says, Dad, turn down the rain. (laughs) I love that. But now there's the other side where at our house, you know, we have a six-year-old, a newly four-year-old, a two-year-old. She doesn't really partake well, she does, actually, a little bit, where we've reached a stage where um, basically there's nothing more funny in the world than potty talk. You know what I'm talking about? The bodily function is involved. It's very humorous. And no matter how much Meg and I try and try and try and say, please don't say that, we don't say that, we don't laugh about that, inevitably, every single time at dinner, lunch, and breakfast— the giggles never cease because of the things that are being said by all three of them. And yet, there's these other moments where the most unexpected little gem of wisdom comes out. You know, from the mouth of babes is what we say, where where they remind us of these profound truths and they have such wisdom that is so unexpected. And like, no joke, my theology is best tested. It wasn't at seminary. It wasn't when Curry gave me my senior theology exam like seven, eight years ago. Though he, you weren't easy on me, but you weren't hard on me either. Thank you again. But even a harder instructor in theology than Pastor Curry is my son Miles when he is asking me questions about faith. Oh man, if you want your theology tested, just sit down with someone in that age range and you will be tested. He asks the most amazing questions, and he has the most profound observations. And then, if anyone has, has helped raise up a young one in the faith, there's that thing you always pray for. It's that profound moment when they show you the hard work that you've been putting in is starting to pay off. That is a beautiful, profound moment. For instance, just last night, saying goodnight to uh, Crosby, I say, love you, Crosby. He goes, love you. And then on on his own, unprompted, he just says, God loves you. Four-year-old, God loves you. Something Megan and I keep telling him, keep telling him, we love you and God loves you. A profound, simple, and most amazing truth from a child. You see, children are not jaded. They're not cynical. They say what they believe. They believe what they say. And they remind us or they teach us something we need to know. And today we have an example of that in our passage. In fact, our kid from today, our kingdom kid from today, only has one written line of dialogue. This person hardly shows up in Scripture, and yet God uses this individual to set something amazing in motion. So we're going to be in, uh, well, before I get to the passage, just this is our third week now of Kingdom Kids. And I got to say, kids, it has been a delight having you in service with us. I love seeing your little smiling faces and, and doing the coloring sheets and all of that. And um, Miles even remembered a couple of things I said in my message last week. How cool is that? He might have a couple of you beat. I say that lovingly. I'm joking, of course. 
We're in week three. Next week, Pastor Curry is going to bring a message about how we raise kingdom kids to be kingdom leaders. But, to, but today, we're going to spend our time in 2 Kings chapter 5. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles there, 2 Kings 5, 1 through 15. Passages will be on the screen as well, but we're going to spend time in this whole passage throughout the entirety of the message. And so let's turn there together, 2 Kings 5, 1 through 15. Here's 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, there's a lot of controversy that is caused from the Bible. Uh, you know, how to interpret certain sticky passages and whatnot. And, 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 and there's a lot of things that are used for controversy in the Bible. But there's one thing that theologians and scholars and pastors far and wide just cannot seem to agree on. And that is how to pronounce this poor man's name. Is it Naaman? Is it... Naaman? Is it Naaman? You should Google how to pronounce Naaman. You'll find all of those. Maybe you don't agree with any of those and it makes you go, nah, man. <laughs> that was good, wasn't it? That was good. Knee slapper. You know it. Had to. I'm going to go with Naaman because it's the easiest and I trust he'll forgive me if it's not <laughs> accurate. Okay? So Naaman. Naaman is the commander of the king's army in Aram. Aram's just another name for Syria. There's, there's two different ways they call it. So when you hear Aram, think Syria and vice versa. Now, Naaman is as high up in the army as you can be. He is the big cheese. Kids, have you heard that expression before? Being the big cheese. Ask your parents. It's a great expression. You're the big cheese, you're the man, all right, or the woman. You are at the top, and he is the big cheese of this army. The king loved him, says he was a great man in the sight of his master. So what makes a commander of armies great in the eyes of the king? Well, it means that in battle, he secures the victory over the king's enemies. And as we read, the Lord had given him and his army victory over their enemies. And wouldn't you know it, Syria, Aram, was an enemy of God's people, that is, Israel. So the text says the Lord gave the enemy victory over his people. But if you read the Old Testament, you ought not be surprised by this detail because as we see throughout the Old Testament, God continues to give Israel every chance to turn back to him, back to his ways. But because of their persistent sin and idolatry, he would allow their enemies to be victorious over them. And so Syria and Israel, they, they had a pattern of conflict and then times of peace. And this passage, we find, is in one of those times of peace between the two, except Syria had recently won over them, but now we're in a peaceful time. So the people of Israel were driven off into captivity. They're in this tenuous peace. 
And Naaman was the big cheese. But there's a problem, isn't there? He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Forgive the potty humor, but that is a big but, okay? But he had leprosy. He had leprosy, an incurable skin disease. It may be leprosy proper, which has a 100% fatality rate. It is terrible. It involves your nerves and dying in your skin, excruciating pain, limbs fall off, that kind of thing, until it ultimately leads to your death. It may also have been another skin disease. Leprosy was often used as kind of a catch-all term for incurable skin diseases. But either way, this is not good. It was very serious. Naaman would be considered unclean. He would be considered contagious. It would lead to Naaman being an outcast, kicked out of his high station uh, and his place in the king's court. This is a big deal. In almost every single way in this moment when he discovered, I have leprosy, Naaman would be hopeless. We continue from verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And we see now our kingdom kid, an unnamed slave, a young girl, and we're talking probably quite young, had been captured and taken by Naaman's people and placed in his house to serve his wife. Consider this kingdom kid. She's taken captive. She's removed from her own family. She's brought into a foreign land to serve a foreign people. She now knows this Naaman. She knows that he led his people to great victories, led battles against her own people, possibly even against her own family. And being in his household, she clearly came to learn that Naaman had this major skin affliction. Now, if you were in her place, would you want to save this guy? I'm amazed that she speaks up. We know Jesus teaches us to love our enemy, to even pray for our enemy. But when push comes to shove, are we ready to actually do that? And here, many, 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 many years before Jesus came, this kingdom kid speaks up to provide the path toward healing for this man who had caused her and her people so much trouble. And what she says is profound, for it is a statement of utter faith and belief in the power of God through his prophet. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Not could try to cure him, not might be able to, not for the right price, would cure him. She has come to believe in the power of God through his prophet and here is willing to offer this news to her enemy. That girl had faith. That girl 
has not lost her childlike wonder of what God can do, even though she had already experienced trials in her young life. No, she believes and she speaks what she believes and she believes what she speaks. That's a kingdom kid right there. She gives hope to the hopeless by pointing Naaman to God. Let's see what happens. Starting back at verse 4. Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter, not to the prophet, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Now this is a lucrative amount, okay? This is out of control. It's 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. Roughly translated to today's worth, that's about three quarters of a billion dollars. That's some money right there. And, uh, uh, and then he throws in some clothes, right? And it's kind of a funny little sentence when you read it. Oh, and also some, so some clothes. That will sweeten the deal. But it's not just some random add-on. Think about it. Clothes were handmade, took a lot of time to make, especially fine clothes. He was highly, highly, highly ranked. So these would be royal garments, likely party garments. The vast majority of people would never own a single set of this type of clothing. And now he is sending 10 sets. That's like going from driving a 98 Corolla to having an entire, that was my favorite car, by the way, my, my precious car from my childhood, uh, a Corolla to having an entire hangar full of fancy, expensive luxury vehicles. And so he takes all of this. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel reads, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And as soon as the king of Israel reads the letter, he tore his robes. He said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. I really love how melodramatic this moment is for this poor king. But think about it. The king of Israel receives an unexpected letter from the king of the land that recently beat him in battle. It's hand-delivered by the commander of the army, and the letter states specifically that Naaman is coming so that you, not the prophet, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. We don't know why the king didn't make mention of the prophet if it was lost in translation, if he forgot, or if it's more just a thing. But the king of Israel knows he cannot heal this man. That's not in his power. He thinks the enemy king here is offering him an impossible task to incite another reason to go to war. Hey, I asked you to heal this guy and you didn't. Now I'm going to destroy you. But here's the thing. The king of Israel has clearly not been holding on to his faith. He forgot that the God of Israel is all-powerful and can do anything. 
And he forgot that there's a prophet that lives in his land that has already done many miraculous things in God's name. Contrast this king of Israel with our kingdom kid, the little girl. She remembers and believes in God and God's prophet. But before we're too hard on this king of Israel, don't we all do this? Don't don't we find ourselves freaking out when trouble comes our way? Don't we think that we have to do everything on our own power? And if we can't do it on our own power, it's impossible? And we forget that the God of all power sees us, knows us, and cares for us. Does our grown-up experience blind us to the wonder of God? It, blind, it, it, made, it made this king blind to the wonders of God. And he here is freaking out. He, he knows he doesn't have the power to do this. And he forgot that God had the power to do this. He forgot there was a prophet in his land. But the prophet hears word of this. And that prophet is Elisha. And so see what it says here with 8 through 14. When Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Uh, king, why have you torn your robes? Have that man come to me. He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. You may have forgotten there's a prophet in Israel, but he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha then sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, you will be clean. You will be cleansed. Picture this scene. Naaman, the big cheese, remember? Showing up with his entourage, the horses, the chariots, carrying with him a whole bunch of gold and silver and clothes and his attendants and his people. And he shows up to the front door of the prophet's house And Elisha does not come to that door to meet him. He sends his messenger to send a little message. He couldn't even be bothered to show up and say, Hey, Naaman, nothing. No, he sends his messenger to himself. And you got to wonder, is Elisha trying to teach Naaman something here? Maybe a little something about humility here. And how does Naaman respond? Probably as you would expect. Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman wanted a grand feat not just to be healed, but for it to be done in style. He also did not want to wash in the Jordan. The Jordan was a dirty, small, nasty little river. And so he cites some rivers he knows from his land saying, those are beautiful, that could be kind of cool, that could maybe work. He doesn't believe that doing this very ordinary thing would bring about any healing because it was just also 
ordinary. But then Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if that prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then? When he tells you, wash and be cleansed. So somehow that got through to Naaman because he went down, he dipped himself in the Jordan, not one times, two times, four times, but all seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. To wash in the Jordan, Naaman thought was beneath a man of his position. But Naaman had to humble himself and obey Elisha's commands in order to be healed. We know that obedience begins, obedience, excuse me, to God begins with humility. We must believe that his ways are better than our own. You see, we may not always understand how he works, but by humbly obeying, we receive his blessing. We must remember that first, God's ways are best. That, that God wants our obedience more than anything else. And that God can use anything and anyone to accomplish his purposes. And God here uses an unexpected kingdom kid, an ordinary, small, dingy river, to accomplish his good purposes. This kingdom kid, a child slave, the humblest, most lowly of positions, to teach a great commander about the power of God. Seven times Naaman washed himself in that Jordan River. And you can imagine the humility grow each washing, each time he enters the water again. He's desperate to be healed, but not believing he likely would. The first time, can't you imagine him saying, this is just ridiculous. And then the second time, why am I wasting my time? The third time, I'm going to show that Elisha if this doesn't work. The fourth time, here we go again. Nothing's happening. Why isn't anything happening? Nothing's still happening. And then that seventh time, do you notice what the text says? His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Same exact Hebrew word described to describe the child earlier on in our passage. His skin became like that of a child. And imagine his faith, imagine his belief, imagine his wonder at that moment and that seventh washing. I don't believe his skin was the only thing that became like a young boy in that moment. He, in that moment, became once more like a child, more like that kingdom kid who sent him back on this path toward God to begin with. Where he had no faith, he now has faith. And we know this because he journeyed all the way back to Elisha. This is like 15 some miles out of his way in the opposite direction of home. And it says in verse 15, Naaman, all of his attendants, went back to the man of God. He stood before him and he said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. 
In other words, your God is the one true God. I now know this. I now believe this. He then offers a gift, which Elisha, of course, uh, turns away and says, no. If you're looking for some extra credit, continue reading the story. It's quite fascinating with the servant Gehazi, another example of someone who in their pride cannot, and unlike Naaman, does not turn back into that childlike wonder that we see here with Naaman. So read uh, the rest of that, that, that account. It's quite fascinating. But as for Naaman, he now believes. The wonder of a child provoked him to turn toward a path uh, that led toward his own wonder of God. Naaman's response here shows a lot of humility and gratitude from someone we have seen no humility or gratitude from until this point. He needed cleansing. He needed humility. He received both. And what's more, he gained belief in the one true God. And I wonder if this might be one of those accounts that Jesus was thinking about when he said, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Kids see things without all that hard buildup that accumulates throughout the years. You ever have a shower with the hard water of Kalamazoo with all that lime buildup? Man, they don't make a product strong enough for that. It is so hard to remember what your tub once looked like without that. That's like our lives. Things build up. We do our best to chip away, but things build up. And it's hard to see through the crusty buildup once more, God with those wonder-filled eyes. But God calls us into that posture, and kids are often the ones to remind us of that wonder, to remind us and to hold on to that profound wonder, the simplest, most sincere expression of our faith and belief. Just as we sang about Jesus loving us. We can get into the deep doctrine of our faith, but if we miss that, we miss everything. Jesus loves us. We know that because his true word tells us. What a most wonderful thing. Our last series was called Worship Full, right? Because we want to be full of worship. We could have very well just called this series Wonderful so that we could be filled with wonder like that of our kids. That is our calling. That's the posture we're called to. There is no greater truth than the knowledge that God loves us. So may we all embrace a childlike wonder and a belief. May we find the miraculous in the ordinary. And may we proclaim with our words and our actions that there is only one God. And he heals, he lives, and you know what? He loves me and he loves you. Praise God. Praise God that God sees you, knows you, and loves you as his kingdom kid. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lord, our God, we thank you that you do indeed love us. We thank you that you often will speak through the most unexpected sources to remind us of your love. God, we, we pray now for the adults in the room against that hard buildup that happens in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you chip away at us as only you can through the power of your Spirit. 
so that we might see you once again with that childlike belief and wonder of who you are and how good you are. And that feeling we feel when a child looks at us and says, God loves you, may we feel that when we look at you and say, you love me. Thank you, God. And Father, we do not have to look far to be reminded of all the ways that you love us, all the things you have done for us, all the ways you constantly pour out as a sacrifice to us, God. In your great power, you choose to use your power to love the world back to you. When we see how Jesus conquered the world with his love for the way that you have freed the captive and the enslaved, we praise you and say thank you once more. So God, it's with the humblest of hearts that we long to say you are our God. You are the one and only God. We will love and serve you alone. For you are mighty, you are strong, and you continue to do the miraculous. Give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe, give us feet to follow. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.